Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, tonight, verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 14 through 16. The verses read, the verses read like this. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's generally recognized that this paragraph is the heart of Paul's three pastoral epistles, not just the heart of First Timothy, but the heart of all the pastoral epistles. This paragraph puts the instructions of the pastorals into their proper perspective. Paul is hoping to visit Timothy soon, but the possibility exists that he might be delayed. He writes to describe how believers should conduct themselves. The reason the church must accept Paul's teaching in this letter is that the church is the house, or household if you prefer, household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and protector of the truth. Did you hear that? A pillar and protector of the truth. As God's house, it must protect God's gospel. And at precisely this point, it would appear as though the Ephesian church was falling short of the mark. If we can reconstruct the situation at Ephesus, and sometimes we can. Scholars call it doing a mirror reading. And it's, it's, not, that, it's not that complicated. But sometimes if we have the answer to a question, we can reconstruct the question. If, 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 if all you had was this, if you just had this, this prepositional phrase, to the store... What might the question have been? What are the possibilities? Where'd you go? Where have you been? It's not, the possibilities are not unlimited. And in the same way, when Paul gives an answer to what appears to be a question, we can take the answer and with reasonable certainty read back and understand what the question is. And that's what New Testament scholars do all day long, seven days a week. And we can, we can reconstruct some of what was happening here, perhaps not with certainty but at least with a high degree of probability, we can reconstruct what was going on at Ephesus. The leadership at Ephesus is apparently less than virtuous. Paul has made that clear already. Uh, And the church's reputation and ability to work in the world has been seriously hampered, and Paul says this must stop. This mandate's not optional. Christian behavior that that is Christ-like is not optional. It's mandatory. We should not go around calling ourselves mature if we know a lot and then act like a jerk 95% of the time. That's not Christian maturity. Christian maturity is knowing and doing. Now, you can't do without the knowing. And that's something that a lot of people are trying to do as well today. But we ought not to stop with the knowing. We need to do the doing as well. That's the book of James, of course. The church is the household of the living God and the judging God. It must maintain its sanctity because of its essential function as a guardian of the truth. Not just a guardian of a truth, 
but the guardian of the truth. When the church ceases to perform its proper function, then God will act. And that is a serious, serious statement. In our Christian culture today, a group called the Emerging Church is openly postmodern and ridicules the teaching of the Word of God, at least in church. They ridicule it as outdated or anachronistic. We're at an interesting crossroads, I think, in church history. Um, Much of the church has, in my view, naively, bought into what's called the seeker church movement. In the seeker church movement, there was an emphasis on evangelism, and there's nothing wrong with an emphasis on evangelism. That's half of the Great Commission. I would have done it a bit different way. In my view, the evangelism, we should train, we should equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We should go out from here and evangelize on the highways and byways and the coffee shops and in the restaurants and the libraries, wherever we encounter people. That's the way evangelism ought to be done. Now, then the seeker church movement, they turned that around, and then they brought the unbelievers into the church and evangelized them on Sunday morning. Nice idea, but the problem was it weakened the second half of the Great Commission. The second half of the Great Commission was teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, even to the end of the age. You see, the instruction is the second half of the Great Commission. Every bit as important as the first half. And the seeker church movement, God love them, took, took evangelism and placed that in a premium both outside and inside the church and lessened, and I think this is fair, all you have to do is read their own material, and lessened the position of biblical instruction in the church. Now, they would hold to biblical instruction, but um, they went about it in a, in a, in a fairly uh, oblique way. Now, that was the seeker church movement, and I, and I will say, I, while I don't agree with the method, I don't agree with that particular ministry philosophy, I think you know that, I don't need to beat that dead horse, but, but I will say that there, there are many fine people in that movement that I think have just been naive or perhaps have been, um, been caught up in the, in the whole idea of evangelism and the positive aspect of evangelism. But the problem is, with, as with, with many things, it, it cracked the door. And sometimes it takes a generation for a truck to drive through a cracked door. Sometimes it happens right away. In this particular case... It's not taking a generation, for there is another movement beyond the seeker church movement. And this is the crossroads about which I speak tonight. You see, the next movement is not just in a a closet sort of way, um, relegating Bible teaching to to the back seat. It's not ignoring Bible teaching so much. It's antagonistic toward Bible teaching. You see, it never stops. Once you get on a slippery slope, it's very difficult, anyway, to stop that. That's why you've got to watch the slope in the first place. And that's why some people get so frustrated with pastors and scholars and teachers because they, want to, they seem to draw the line at the strangest places. And you say, how could you do that? Can't you have a little flexibility? No, you can't. That's why these things are fought in the seminaries. That's, that's, and I believe that's why it ought to be fought in the seminaries first. Amongst, amongst the, 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 the Christian scholarship of the day, and I don't necessarily believe the church ought to listen in on that. I don't think the church is prepared to. But sooner or later, things trickle down. And the whole idea of the secret church trickled down, and it became a phenomenon. But now they're on a slope. And what are we going to do with the emerging church? Because the emerging church is the next wave. 
The emerging church is not a closet group of postmoderns. They are openly postmodern, meaning that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, how can you preach Christianity without absolute truth? I don't know how you can do it. It saddens me terribly. It is not funny. It's not just a matter of flexibility. It's not a matter of we're all part of the family. Yes, we're all part of the family, but we got some people in the family that are doing harm to the body. We need to pray for them. I don't, I'm not, I don't mean to be mean to them. They need to be prayed for. There are people in the emerging church, the leaders of this new movement called the Emerging Church, which has been published largely by a publisher by the name of Zondervan, who in the past you could count on to only publish solid things. That much of the emerging church literature is being published by very well-known Christian publishers, hence giving a stamp of approval to it when it's not a stamp of approval. It's a, it's a, it's a crass greed wanting money, because that, that could be the only reason why you'd abandon the faith like that. But these people, these people don't just relegate Bible teaching to the back seat. They ridicule Bible teaching. Now, where are we going with this? You see, when, a, when, a, when the local church ceases to perform the function for which it was performed, God is going to step in, and he's going to act. And it's going to be sad when he does. He did it in Israel. You see, in Israel, it has so many privileges. Paul talks about them in the book of Romans. And sometimes the people of Israel thought they may have an excuse. Paul says, you don't have an excuse. You had the very oracles of God, and what did you do with it? In the end, very little. You were supposed to be proclaiming that to all the nations, and you didn't do it. Not only did you not proclaim it outside, but you didn't do it inside. And while the Great Commission had not yet been given, you see the two aspects again? You see an outside and an inside aspect? And God brought them down. He brought them down as a whole nation. He didn't just go after the priest, and of course Jeremiah does, but he doesn't, just, he doesn't simply go after the priesthood for failure. He goes after the people too. And this is a serious, serious thing. The local church, the church universal and the local church, has a responsibility to guard the truth. And how can you guard the truth when you openly say there is no such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong? I know you think that I'm, you have to be thinking I'm making half of this up. I'm not. I wish I was. This is, the, this is out there. All you have to do is read the literature. Uh, go to the library and borrow it. I wouldn't buy it. But, but it's there, and it's there in a sad way. When the church ceases to perform the function in fulfilling the Great Commission with, that it was given, evangelizing the unbeliever and instructing the believer... God will intervene. Now, before we enter into um, an exposition of verses 14 through 16, I do believe some comment about the concept of the church is in order. The English word that's translated church in this passage and other passages is, the, is a, a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, uh, which means in its most basic usage, an assembly. Now, some people like to break the word down into, into the word ek and in form of kaleo, meaning called out ones. You can do that with some Greek words, but, but it's, in my view, it's poor technique. You need, you need to look at what a Greek word actually means in its context. And this is an old Greek word. It goes all the way back to the, to the, time, uh, to the times of the, the height of the, the Greek uh, governments in, w- in which they would have an ecclesia, or they'd have an assembly of the people that would get out and vote, and they'd talk, and they'd, they'd debate. And that's what it means here. In its most basic sense, it means an assembly. But it came to mean, in the way that it was used in the New Testament, it came to mean the church. Now, there are two aspects of the church, the ecclesia. 
There's the local church, and there's the church universal. And, and we need to make sure we have these two concepts correctly focused in our minds before we're going to be able to appreciate how we should behave in this organization or in this organism. First, the local church. This is what you probably think of most commonly when we hear the word church. You hear, you hear the word church, you think First Baptist, Second Baptist, Lakewood, Grace Presbyterian, Pine Valley, wherever. You think of individual local churches. And this is a, a very common way that this word is used. By the way, back to just the word itself, of the 114 times the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament, 111 of them are used in the epistles. Does that tell you something? Of the 114 times, 111 are used in the epistles. This is a, this is a post-gospel period concept or idea. We'll see that in just a few minutes. But the, uh, the most common use of this word ecclesia is of the local church, individual group of believers, or at least of people, that is identified as a local assembly or a congregation. There, were, there was a church at Jerusalem. There were churches in Asia Minor, in Rome, in Corinth, Galatia, Thessalonica, the home of Philemon. There were, there were many places that were called the church, and they were individual local churches. They met in homes, generally speaking. We don't have any archaeological evidence of church buildings of any size until probably 300 years after the church began, or thereabouts, before they got very big at all. That's the local church. Now, the local church, theoretically, should be made up of believers. Practically, though, it may be made up of believers and unbelievers. It breaks my heart to think that. It breaks my heart to think if the rapture were to occur late in the night or early in the morning on a Sunday, there may actually be people to show up for a service at Pine Valley the next Sunday morning, but it's a possibility. In fact, it's probability. And as a pastor, that breaks my heart. You see, because there's the only person that knows if you're really, truly, if, if you really have truly trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life are, are you in Jesus Christ. You can, you can fool people, and sometimes people do. Sometimes people come to church to satisfy a parent or a, or a girlfriend. That happens from time to time. Or a boyfriend, they're trying to make an impression. Or they're coming because of their wife. They're coming because of their kids, especially dads. Let me tell you something. Don't come because of your wife. Be a man about it. At least be up front with her and say, listen, I'm not interested in spiritual things. I lied to you when I was dating you. I flat out lied to you. I, t- I told you whatever you needed to hear so that I would come to church with you. At least be a man about it. It makes me sick. I've seen that happen so many times, even in the history of our own church and in, in other churches I've been in. Guys will come in because they're dating somebody. They want them to think that they're interested in spiritual things. They're not. Same way with girls, but it kind of disgusts me when the guys do it. Don't, at least be a man about it and tell her you're not interested in spiritual things. Then see if she still marries you. Okay? And if she does, then that's her business. But it happens. There are unbelievers that come to the local church, and that's how that term is used. But the universal church is a different animal. Now, in times pre-Reformation, the universal church also used to be called the Catholic Church. And that's a bit confusing, because the term Catholic, I didn't say Roman Catholic Church. Just the term Catholic is a word that just means universal. And so uh, you you hear of the Catholic epistles. Uh, uh, The Catholic epistles are not Roman Catholic epistles. They are epistles that were meant for a very wide distribution. So it was long about the time, right after Tyndale, in England that you see writers start trying to switch over from the term Catholic when they termed universal church and use the term universal church because they didn't want it confused with the church at Rome. The universal church is different from the local church in this sense. The universal church is only made up of believers. 
The universal church is the church at large. The universal church is the entirety of the Christian community, not a specific group of believers or people gathered in a particular locality. Uh, The local church is an individual group. The universal church views all those who in this age have been born of the Spirit of God and have by that same Spirit been baptized into the body of Christ. That was our subject on Sunday morning, if you remember. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, and 1 Peter chapter 1, 3, and 22 through 25. We'll get back to some of those in a minute. It was this corporate group of believers that Christ gives this promise to build. Christ said, I will build my church. In context, he's not talking about any specific local church. He doesn't promise to build any specific local church. In my view, he's only promising to build those churches that are doing his will. Now, that's a promise. And he's, and he's promising to build them at his pace with the amount of people that he wants to have, not necessarily setting a, a goal. We want to have 100 people by next year. We want to have 200 people by the next year, 300 people by the next year. And in many ways, that's most unspiritual. It's most unscriptural as well. Christ is going to build his church at his pace. But the promise is more to the universal church than to the local church. Now, in the passage that we have here, I'm writing you these things, hoping to come to you before long in case I'm delayed. I write you so that one ought to know how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul's speaking about both here, in my view. He's talking about how to behave yourself as a Christian, but also how to behave yourself within that local body as well, perhaps even more so in the local body. Uh, it's this body for whom Christ died, Ephesians 5.25. He's the head over the church, not just the local church, but the universal church. He gives it direction. He refers to it as his body in Ephesians chapter 1. It can't refer to a local assembly, but, but has to refer to the entirety of the Christian community. All those in the universal church are saved. I want you to remember that. If if you don't get a whole lot else, at least remember that. All those who are in the local church are saved, but not necessarily all those... I'm sorry, all those in a universal church are saved, not necessarily all those who are in a local church. The church at Rome, for example, would say that you're saved because you're identified with the church. And with all due respect, I beg to differ from that. Uh, You're saved by identification with Jesus Christ. Not by, with, not, not by identification with any local church body. Just because you're a member of any local church does not make you a member of the family of God. You're a member of the family of God by grace through faith. Now, I ask you before you join Pine Valley, I ask you two or three questions, but one of the questions I ask you is, have you ever personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life? If I get a kind of him all answer, then I'll ask you more about it. And the... Sometimes people just don't know how to express it. Sometimes people are, are really confused. But the universal church is the broader church. Now, there is a question that's been on people's minds for almost uh, 2,000 years, and people have argued about it back and forth, actually more today than they used to, at least based upon my reading. And that is, when did the church begin? Not the local church. I can tell you when this particular local church began. I think it was the uh, first week in November 1994. That's when this local church began. But when did the universal church begin? Did it begin all the way back with Abel, as one of the the medieval fathers thought, that brought the church back to Abel? Did it begin in Abraham's tent? Uh, Did it begin with the Mosaic Law? Well, no. The local church, I mean, sorry, the 
the universal church did not begin at those times. We understand that the universal church began on the day of Pentecost. Now, we understand that, and you might understand it as well, but do you know why we would hold to that? Well, let me help you with that if it's not been something that you've studied before. There are five passages, and this, if you do, uh, or if you are inclined to write things down in the Bible study, this would be the time to do it. These are five passages which demonstrate that the local church, I'm sorry, the church universal, please forgive me, the church universal began on the day of Pentecost and not in the Old Testament. We don't see the Old Testament, uh, we don't see in the Old Testament the universal church. The Israel did not become the church. It's not one and the same things. Um, and by the way, this is... Uh, in the early part of the church, all the early church fathers, at least that I can read, all the early church fathers had some understanding that the universal church began with Christ. Now, they may not have been specific about the day of Pentecost, but they understood that it began with Christ, not, not in times past. And even Martin Luther did, as best as I can tell. John Calvin was a bit ambivalent about it, and then many that have followed Calvin in the Reformed tradition have been ambivalent about it and see the church in the Old Testament but if you take a careful look at the text, we, we won't see it there. Now, the first passage, and if you, there's only five of them, and I don't typically have you turn to a lot of different passages in any one message. There's a reason for that. I know it's a little harder to follow along with the message if you're turning to 20 or so per, per lesson. But I'm just going to give you five, so you might want to turn to these. The first one I'd ask you to turn to is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Matthew 16, 18. In this passage, our Lord is speaking not too long before he will be crucified to his disciples. And he says, And also I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Again, I believe he's speaking of the universal church, not any particular local church. And the, the closer a local church is to fulfilling God's will, to fulfilling the Great Commission, then the more you can count on this, pro, this promise being applied to an individual local church. He says, I will build my church. Now, I know a lot of you, it's been a while since you were in English class, and you're glad of it. And the last thing you want to do is think about any kind of temporal aspect of a verb. But this one's not hard. If you look at this verb, I will build my church, is this something that sounds like a past action a present action, or something that is going to most likely happen in the future. Well, it's going to something that's going to happen in the future. It's not most likely since the Lord is the one that's saying it. If he makes a promise, he's going to do it. So we know at least at the time of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, the church is yet future. Now that seems to cut out the church beginning with Abel. Does it not? It seems to cut out the church beginning in Abraham's tent or with the Mosaic law. Because by the time of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, the church is yet future. Now the next four you're going to have to follow along with me just a bit. The next one is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And we studied that a bit on Sunday morning, but if you're inclined, turn there again with me just briefly. And let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And again, for context, like we did on Sunday morning, let's look at verse 12 first. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ's. Now in verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were, made all, we were all made to drink 
of one spirit. Now, this verse identifies the manner in which the church is built. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the baptism of the Holy Spirit forms the body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit forms the body. Now, we're not finished. We have to tighten this up a bit. And in order to tighten it up, let's turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. In verses 22 and 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all in all. Now what we, what we have here, Matthew chapter 16, 18, the church is yet future. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the baptism of the Holy Spirit forms the body. But someone could raise their hand and say, oh, well, all you're proving is that the, the, that the body is, is sometime later. Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 equates the body with the church. Does everybody see that? You see why you have to put that passage in there in order to tighten this up? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 equates the body with the church. So, so far we have this. The church is yet future in Matthew's time, or in the time of Matthew chapter 16, 18. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that forms the body. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 indicates that the body equals the church. So now what do we need to find out? Well, when does this baptism of the Holy Spirit occur then? That would let us know when the body or the church is formed, right? Okay, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 5. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, this is right before the ascension. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, remember the book of Acts is a continuation of the book of Luke. It picks right up where Luke left off. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized, or will be baptized, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Acts chapter 1, verse 5, says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is soon, or imminent. It is soon. It was anticipated as happening fairly quickly. And it does happen fairly quickly after the ascension. Now, there's one more passage that theologians generally use, and it's in Acts chapter 11, verse 15. Again, to tighten it up. And Peter, speaking uh, sometime later, says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. He's speaking to the Gentiles now. Just as he did upon us at the beginning. Just as he did upon us at the beginning. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a past event. And in context, the only mention of the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit between these two things is the day of Pentecost. So again, now, now that we've got it on the board, follow through with me with the reasoning if you, if you can. First, and, and one of the most important perhaps, is in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says that the church is yet future. So that cuts out a lot of those who are in the Reformed tradition that believe that they can see the church in the Old Testament. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13 says it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit that takes believers and places them not only into union with Christ, but into the body of Christ, which is, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the church. Do you see why this is so important? Otherwise, you can, you can prove something, but you can't prove what we're setting out to prove. The body equals the church. I know you took that for granted, but we need a verse that tells us that. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, this baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit, we find out, is coming soon, and it's imminent very soon, but it hasn't happened yet. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 11, verse 15, it is already a past tense event, and Peter says this is what happened in the beginning, and the only event between these two that the Scriptures mention at all with regard to baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit is on the day of Pentecost. So when did the church begin? Yes? You have a question? The day of Pentecost is Acts chapter 2. No, wait a minute. Yeah, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The point is that the church was not found in the Old Testament. The church began with the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, you never maybe you're never going to be in a position where you have to have those five memorized, but it wouldn't hurt. And uh, especially when, when people attempt, this is how it could be misapplied. That all doctrine is profitable. It is profitable. And this is how this might be profitable. Somebody comes to you and says, uh, have you given your tithe today? And you say, well, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily tithe. I do grace giving. I give this particular percentage or that particular percentage. And then they pull out Malachi and tell you you're robbing from God. Or they'll pull out the Mosaic Law. How do you argue with that? Well, that was, that was a, that was, it's a dispensational thing. Uh, if they say that, uh, and, and please, uh, please forgive me for this, because a lot of people want to be under the law that haven't ever read the law. But, it, but if they say, uh, um, if a woman's on her menstrual cycle, you better stay inside for the full seven days. No, wait a minute, I never read that part. You see, if you're going to follow it, follow it. If we're going to follow it, let's, let's take the homosexual out and stone them. Let's take the recalcitrant teenager out and stone them. Let's take the adulterer out and stone them. If we're going to follow it, follow it. If you're going to follow Mosaic law giving, then don't stop at 10%. Because actually it's closer to 30% and it went higher than that every few years. If we're going to follow it, follow it. If we're going to follow it and somebody buys your lunch, do you tie that? Do you figure out how much it was and tie that? No, that's silliness. We're not under the Mosaic law. We're under the law of Christ, which actually is a higher law, in which God says, hey, listen, give whatever, give whatever's purposed on your heart. <laughs> That's a little tougher one. Because you're not, in fact, most grace giving in the New Testament is going to be more than that. In the New Testament, we recognize that everything belongs to God. We don't give him his 10%. Please don't ever say that. It's his 100%. It's not his 10%. You give what he placed on your heart. Now, if you want to call it your tithe and you understand all that, that's one thing. But if you understood this, you would understand that the church wasn't, Israel didn't just flow into the church. It was, it's not one and the same organism. They're two separate organisms. One plan for salvation. Don't ever, don't ever get confused by that. It's by grace through faith, no matter what dispensation you find yourself. But this does, in case you were wondering, this does have an application. Now, there are also several figures that are used to describe the church in Scripture. We just talked about one here, the body. The church equals the body. That was Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and also uh, Colossians chapter 1, 18. This illustration of the body is an important one because it, it emphasizes the unity that believers should have. 
aside from some sort of mental illness or neurological problem, it, typically you don't see a hand beating someone's own face, do you? No, I mean, that would, we would consider that person mentally ill or neurologically challenged in some way. If they, would, if they were to take one part of their body and willingly do damage to another part. Why? Because we, all, we want this whole thing to work together, don't we? You know, I, w- I want my hands to, to, to do things that will help my head out, not to damage my head. I want it to, I don't want it to use, use it to take food into, uh, with a fork and, and place it into my mouth that's going to nourish my body. I don't want to use parts of my body to damage other parts. The, the body is the, is the community of local believers, and it's not just your local church. You've got to think outside of that. It's true it starts with your local church, but the body of Christ with whom there should be a unity in the sphere of the truth, John chapter 17, not, not at the expense of the truth. But we should, we should have a, a unity with the entire Christian community. Unfortunately, sometimes people make it difficult, but that doesn't take away the command. You think, think to your own family even now. If you, can't, if you can't get the body part, think to your own family. Parents, how much do you enjoy it? when one of your children is not getting along with one of your other children. That's just great, isn't it? Don't, don't you just love that? Don't you just wake up and thank God that the kids aren't getting along today? No, it breaks your heart, because you love them both. You know, you, you know, if a mother, you nursed them both. You brought them both in. You went through labor pains for them both. You want to see them get along. Now, you don't want to see them get along at the expense of the truth. You don't want to see them both get along because they're both going down a bad road. You want to see them get along within the sphere of the truth in their, in their relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, if you can understand that, then just expand that to your understanding of the Christian community as well. You know, God wants us to get along. He wants us to get along within the sphere of the truth. That was, that was Jesus' prayer for us right before he died. And we see this with the illustration of the body, but that's one you're probably most familiar with. There's another illustration, and that is that we are the bride of Christ. I love this one. We're his bride. This is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. It's a passage that I use often in weddings to, um, to uh, illustrate in, in part the husband's responsibility in marriage. But an analogy is drawn that compares the husband and wife relationship in marriage to, uh, to the relationship of Christ and his bride. We are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a group, we are his bride. And just like you cared for your bride and still do, and you'd do anything for her, at least that's the way it ought to be in, in Christian marriages, we are his bride. And in that tender, he'll, he'll do what it takes to protect us. Matter of fact, he's already done that. That's why the, the, the role model for the husband in marriage is Jesus Christ, who, who loved the church and gave himself for it. In the same way, husbands should love their bride and give themselves for it, not just in a physical way because most of us don't have to die physically for our spouses for our brides but in other ways as well setting aside one's own needs to make sure the needs of the, of the bride is fulfilled and jesus has done that that's ephesians 5:23. another figure of the church that you'll find in the new testament is of a building this one's not quite as tender granted as the as the bride metaphor but it is there and, and this also gets back to the unity aspect though you know, if, if a building, if, if we were in this room right now, and we had a solid floor, we had solid walls, we had a nice air conditioning system, but no roof, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a building that's functioning in the way in which it was intended. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the, the, on a day like today, we probably would not have been able to meet because, uh, because the, the rain's coming down. And so you need a good foundation. You need good walls. A, a, a building is... 
is also a picture of oneness. It's a picture of unity. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, Ephesians 4.12, 4.13 as well. You see how many of these passages come from Ephesians? Figure one of the things Paul's talking about in the book of the letter to the Ephesians has some things in mind with regard to the church. Well, he certainly does. Now, the apostles, collectively, are one of the foundational gifts of the church. They're designed to equip believers. That goes back to that instruction thing we were talking about a minute ago. And they also were given so that the church might come to maturity. In the figure of the building, Jesus Christ, of course, is the cornerstone. In, in architecture, it's understood that, that Jesus Christ is, is like architecture in the ancient world. He's the very first stone that was laid. And everything else is going to be laid out upon that stone. And he's the perfect stone. And if you, if you follow that model, then the whole building's going to be fine. Get off from that, and you won't. We are all being fitted together, Ephesians 2, 21, emphasizing Christ's work of constructing his church. He's the bricklayer. He's the plumber. He's the electrician. He's the roofer. He's the one that's doing it. We're also called, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, a holy priesthood. Peter says... You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. This is reminiscent of the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where God declares that Israel is a kingdom of priests, but we are being built up for a holy priesthood, even over and above the kingdom of priest concept in Israel. So, See, in Israel, you had to be from the tribe of Levi to function as a priest. And you had to be from the family of Aaron, at least theoretically, to function as the high priest. But now every one of you is a priest. You know, you don't have to. I know, maybe you grew up in a tradition where you had to go to somebody else to confess your sins. You can confess them right straight to God. You can go to God and tell him your, your joys and your disappointments. You can pour your heart out upon him, and you don't have to go through an intermediary. Uh, we are all our own priests. And also, there's uh, another... Uh, tender, beautiful illustration, I believe, and that's what we're called the flock. This first comes up in John chapter 10, looking forward to the future, but it was an Old Testament idea as well. The, the Jews were the flock of God, and we're the flock of God as well in a unique way. We see that in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. Um, Jesus says that he's the shepherd. The Greek term poimen, which is translated pastor, means shepherd. And um, we are his flock. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be first to tell you, I've, I've never been in a flock of sheep. I've seen them from the road, but that's the closest I've gotten. Talked to my friend Gene Brown, who has been in a, in a few uh, uh, sheep herds, I would guess, and, and uh, read some books about it. It's very interesting. The sheep are very helpless. They, they don't drink out of running water. They're not going to be able to fend off against any enemy. Uh, they need to be led to food. Um, you know, it's not the most complimentary thing in the world for us to be compared with a sheep, but it's true. You know, we get to thinking we're hot stuff sometimes. You know, I'll take care of my own needs, thank you very much. You know, or, or get this one. Um, I'm not going to bother God with that. I'll take care of that. I'll, I'll just go to him for the big things. Oh, really? I don't think so. Please don't say that, because as soon as you do, God's going to show you that uh, even those little things can become big things. If you try to go out on your own, I'm glad he's my shepherd. 
Now, the way he's done this is, is he is our great shepherd. He's the shepherd for every, every believer who's, who's lived in this dispensation. He's also given us under shepherds. They're also called poimen. That's the gift of pastoring and teaching or eldering or bishoping. As we said before, they're not synonymous terms, but they're used interchangeably. Uh, those, those terms emphasize different offices or different aspects of the office. The term bishop emphasizes more the administrative things. Um, that's the term uh, elder emphasizes more the, the spiritual leadership and oversight. But the term pastor emphasizes that shepherding, that care, that nurturing, the feeding, uh, the daily feeding. Shepherds didn't skip three or four days and feed their sheep. They fed them consistently. And a good under-shepherd will do that. It's also helpful for anybody that's in the ministry to remember that those that are in the local church who are the flock, and sometimes we'll call, call them my flock, just so you understand you're doing it in a delegated way. In the same way that David would have called those sheep his sheep, and he took care for them. As a matter of fact, when one of his sheep got taken by a lion or a bear, he went out to get that sheep back. Now, technically, the sheep belonged to his father, but he was a great under-shepherd. And any good shepherd will, will consider the sheep as though they were their own, but recognize at the end of the day that they ultimately belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the flock is a beautiful and tender image. And finally, the branches. We get this from John chapter 15. This is our last one for this evening. The, the branches describe this close relationship that we, we have with our Lord. And in fact, in that passage, uh, John is going to tell us, quoting our Lord Jesus Christ, that apart from him, we can do nothing. There's, there's this nourishing relationship between a vine and a branch. And uh, Jesus is the true vine. The Father is the, the, the farmer or the one who prunes the branches so that, they can, uh, uh, so that the entirety of the plant can have maximum production. But the branches get the, give their, uh, receive their life-giving nourishment uh, from the vine, and uh, that's straight, right straight from God. So you see, we see today that there are two aspects to the church. There's a local church, which is made up of believers and possibly unbelievers, the universal church, which is made up of believers alone. We see that the church began on the day of Pentecost, starting in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, moving to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, which showed that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what... Is what Form the body of Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, which show that the body of Christ equals the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, which shows that the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit is something that hasn't happened yet, but is about to happen very soon. We understand that happens in Acts chapter 2, and then by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, 11, Acts chapter 11, verse 15, we're looking back upon it. And then we have the figures of the church, of the body, the bride, the building, the priesthood, the flock, and the branches. That's, that is the, the foundational material, no pun intended, of the doctrine of ecclesiology, the study of the church. This is what Paul speaks about in this paragraph and actually in all the pastoral epistles. This is the, the passage, verses 14 through 16, is the heart of all this because he tells us what, what he's doing in the rest of the pastoral epistles. This is important stuff. It's not just stuff for uh, a seminary class. These are things that you can apply to your life by rightly dividing the word of truth. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work.